Hi there! My name is John Harvey and this is my book. Uh, we're going to pick up now on chapter 2. I actually already read quite a bit into it, except the literal son of a bitch right there was barking, 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 and I had to stop and start all over again, so here we go. All right, so. so this chapter... Okay, first of all, I've moved to a new room. This is in the Hobbit room, uh, the room over our garage, and I hope that the acoustics are better here. As you can see, I've hung a, hung a blanket back here, and uh, otherwise, let's see, what else did I tell you the last time I went through all this? Well, this is the room, as you may know from, from Cowboy Economist videos, where I have all my war games. I got uh, Sinai right here, which I actually uh, showed in one of my Cowboy Economist videos because I was talking about the... Arab-Israeli war that led to the um, OPEC oil embargo. Here's Napoleon at bay. Counters are completely unpunched. Not a big Napoleon guy, but it must have been on sale somewhere. So I have roughly 300 games, uh, of which I've played maybe 10. Okay, that's that's not true. It's more than that. So, uh, so anyway, we'll see if this works out better up here. Now, I had promised myself that when I got to, to, to subsequent chapters, that I would uh, make sure I'd read the chapter first. I don't have time. All right, so this is going to be kind of like slam poetry, except it's going to be slam book reading, where who knows what's going to happen next, all right? So I'm going to read here now uh, from pages 8 to page uh, 36 is footnotes, uh, I guess about 35 in chapter 2. Now chapter 2, if you remember from the last two videos, first one was just the acknowledgments and kind of setting things up. The second one was the introductory chapter, where I didn't have really a whole lot to say. Uh, and now we're really getting into the, to, to the subject more seriously. Uh, this is going to be a chapter on economics as a scientific discipline. Well, that's a lot to bite off right there. And this chapter took me a very long time to write. The, the problem was, well, here, let me read you the opening paragraph, and then I'll, I'll, I'll back up and give you the uh, little commentary I was about to give you. Marxists, Austrians, neoclassicals, feminists. These are all subgroups of the larger group called economists. Before trying to understand the elements unique to each individual school of thought, it is necessary to take a step back and look at some of the broader issues that affect them all. To that end, this chapter discusses the nature of scientific inquiry, the means by which we train economists, the reward structure that exists in our profession, and the process by which accepted theory evolves. This detailed outline of the current state of our discipline will create a context within which each school of thought can be understood. A key conclusion of the chapter is that the development of reliable explanations of economic phenomena requires a pluralistic approach to the development of theory, one in which schools of thought debate openly and vigorously in the atmosphere of mutual respect. Unfortunately, the actual structure of our discipline encourages just the opposite. So, I'm going to go through here and talk about something that I don't think philosophers still 100% agree on, and that is what is the nature of science, and uh, then talk about the economics discipline, the incentive structures that exist there. I'm going to move the camera up just a little bit. Um, those of you who are only listening need not worry about this at all. Uh, and you'll notice a lot of my institutionalist background coming through in this chapter, because I think something that's particularly important to talk about here is, as it just said in the introductory paragraph, uh, that this is a cultural thing. Science is a cultural. Science science is a subculture. It is a group of people who share certain values, right? Uh, and carry out certain types of practices and so forth. And I think we need to understand it that way in order to understand how uh, economic theory and policy evolve. So here we go. What is science? Let's start with a very basic question about which many volumes have been written. What is science? 
We are taught in primary and secondary school that it is methodical, experimental, and objective, and that the world it studies has particular innate characteristics. The job of the scientist is to make careful, unbiased observations and to use these to formulate hypotheses. These hypotheses are then tested to see which are valid and which are not. Other scientists double-check this by trying to replicate the original researcher's work. It is by this process that we slowly accumulate knowledge about the way the world really works. There is a definite right and wrong, and we know for certain how many phenomena really and truly work. Scholars of scientific method believed this idealized classroom version for many years, and who can blame them given the evidence of tremendous technological advance? But closer examination reveals several problems. Start first with the subject matter. Is the world really out there in some objective form waiting for us to discover its secrets? Or are we actually putting our own particular interpretations on what we see? The quick answer is that it is no doubt a bit of both, but especially the latter. To understand this, consider for a moment the philosophical query, if a tree falls in the forest and no one is around to hear it, does it make a sound? One is usually told that there are a number of potential answers, and that these depend on your perspective and assumptions. Teasing out the latter is the point of the exercise, but strictly speaking, and assuming no one also excludes animals from being within earshot, there's only one correct response, and that is no. This is because sound, quote-unquote, does not exist in the absence of ears or similar organs. Our ears translate the vibrations in the air into impulses that we interpret as sound. If there are no ears, there is no sound. Thus, while it might be safe to say that one of the consequences of a tree falling in the forest is the creation of vibration in the air, it is not sound unless there are ears in the vicinity. Sound is just our human-centered or ear-centered interpretation of it. Our version of what happened is, quite naturally, biased by what we are equipped to notice. For all we know, there may be a whole range of fascinating and important phenomena associated with tree falling of which we are totally ignorant. Things that would be noticed by dogs, like the one over here to my left, eagles, bats, ants, microscopes, thermometers, seismographs, extraterrestrials, and so on. We do not, therefore, collect facts, only our limited impressions of the phenomena we are capable of noticing. It's not just our senses or the scientific tools used to enhance them that affect our perspective. We are social animals. We hunt, mate, feed, and so on in packs. We also instinctively want to share the culture of our pack, as this is what binds us together and makes us feel safe. Returning to how science is done, since cultures differ, this creates even more room for varying interpretations of the phenomena we experience. The world around us is filtered first by our physical capabilities and then by our cultural proclivities. To offer a simple example, take the fable of the boy who cried wolf, attributed to the Greek storyteller Aesop. A young shepherd is guarding his flock in an isolated pasture and is very lonely and bored. He decides to call out wolf so that the townspeople will rush out to help him. They do so, which relieves his boredom. But when he arrives, he tells them, when they arrive rather, he tells them that the wolf's already gone. And they go back to town until he repeats the very same cry for help the next day and the next. Each time they hurry to the pasture, only to be told that the wolf has just left. On the fourth day, a wolf really does attack the flock, and the shepherd calls out once again, but the increasingly suspicious townspeople do not come. They assume it is yet another of his lies, and the boy and his flock are devoured. In cultures where this story is told, the intended lesson is that if you continually lie, no one will believe you even if you are telling the truth. The moral is that you should always be honest. However, on the science fiction television program Star Trek Deep Space Nine, the same story is told to a member of an alien species called the Cardassians, which has nothing to do with the Kardashians, by the way. 
Their fictitious culture is a very Spartan one, in which victory at any price is highly praised. Friendships and honesty are not valued as much as success and cunning. Hence, when the human Dr. Bashir self-righteously announces the moral of the story to the Cardassian Elam Garrick, the latter replies with, are you sure that's the point, doctor? Dr. Bashir responds, of course, what else could it be? To which Garrick suggests that you should never tell the same lie twice. Garrick's implication that the fable could just as easily be used to illustrate Cardassian values is quite right. right? So, I mean, to the Cardassian viewpoint, uh, well, why, the kid was stupid. I mean, if he'd made up a different reason for everyone to come rushing up to the pasture, uh, then he could have, you know, could have come out of this alive. But uh, instead, he told, stole the same stupid lie over and over. Serves him right. If this is true, the moral itself must not be inherent to the story. Rather, each observer, quote, learned, unquote, from the tale only what he already believed in the first place. For Dr. Bashir, the fact that the liar in the story is punished is consistent with his culture's view. For Garrick, it shows, as Cardassians believe, that one must be cunning. Had the boy only concocted more imaginative lies, he might have both survived and relieved his loneliness. Yet a third observer could have argued that the story illustrated the folly of entrusting dangerous jobs to children or that a cry for help should never be ignored. What you see is strongly influenced by what you expect to see. As the economist Gunnar Myrdal was fond of saying, there can be no view except from a viewpoint. These issues of bias are not limited to stories about falling trees and shepherds. Those who study research in the natural sciences, where one would imagine that these problems would have the least impact, have nevertheless found that scientists tend to design studies in a manner that makes them more likely to, quote, discover, unquote, precisely what they expected to find in the first place. This need not be intentional, and in some ways it's unavoidable. If you expect that a chemical process is going to generate heat, then you set up a thermometer to measure it. But if you don't expect it, then you may not use a thermometer, and an important side effect may go unnoticed. You design your experiment to record what you expect to see, which makes it more likely that you will see it and not something else. In the words of Albert Einstein, whether you can observe a thing or not depends on the theory which you use. Now, none of this precludes scientific progress, of course. It must not, or we would not have powered flight, penicillin, plumbing, or the printing press. That's alliteration. Um, it just shows that the process is not as straightforward as you were taught when you were younger. The fact is that scientists are people too, with the same strengths and weaknesses as the rest of us. So now the next part of the chapter is a realistic version of science. This is about as far as I got last time before you started barking everywhere. Okay. If scientists are not uncovering objective facts, then what are they doing? Well, the first step in answering that question is the realization that real-life science is in itself a subculture that consists of a bundle of worldviews, values, practices, and behavioral standards. And then there's a footnote. I've got this over here to read out the footnotes. Um, while the term subculture usually implies the existence of certain countercultural elements, I am using the term more generally here. I merely mean some distinct subgroup within a larger culture. There's a fantastic book called um, Subcultures, the Meaning of Style, uh, about uh, punk and uh, Rastafarianism and, and teddy boys and so forth in England. Really great book. Uh, so, I'm using the term subculture, though, to just uh, denote a, a smaller section of the overall culture. It exists within a larger culture, with which there will be varying degrees of overlap and conflict. In that sense, what we call science is no different from Buddhism, dentistry, Rastafarianism, online computer gaming, antique collecting, or any other group that shares behavioral norms and common practices. It is not a cultural or value-free, but a particular culture and a specific set of values. 
Roughly speaking, what really makes a scientist a scientist is the belief that the world can be understood via the systematic study of its observed characteristics and that skepticism, objectivity, and respect for logic and evidence are the values most likely to lead us to useful and reliable explanations. This is the essence of their subculture. Not that they, like members of any other subculture, are always successful in living up to their own ideals. The communities of individuals who share these ideals extend across many different kinds of science and a number of distinct schools of thought or paradigms, and I'm going to use school of thought and paradigm interchangeably here, even though they're not necessarily exactly the same thing. Uh, thinking, uh, so, uh, thinking specifically about economics, although this would probably apply more generally, each school of thought consists of the following elements. And to be honest with you, I never really used this much. Uh, I, I, I struggled with whether or not I should include this in the book or not. Let, let me show this little, little chart here, and then I'll read it out for those of you who are only listening. Uh, let's see. This is my uh, structure of a school of thought. A formal analytic structure, which includes a worldview, ideological and philosophical lens through which members see the real world, axioms, unquestioned and unquestionable assumptions, methods, how the economy should be studied, and provisional explanations, theories and models. That's, that's part one. Part two is recommended applications of their research or policies, uh, and then part three is behavioral standards that each member is expected to follow in order to remain in good standing. And so, again, I, I used some of this in the rest of the book. I, I, felt a, I felt like I needed to do something like this to, to sort of say this is what a school of thought is, uh, but I'm not sure I stuck to it all that well later in the book, but we'll see. These are discussed at length below, with parenthetical references to the outline above to make following the discussion easier. In the process, a more realistic view of a version of science will be built. The formal analytic structure, section one, consists of the worldview, axioms, and methods shared by the community of science in question, plus the set of provisional explanations they have developed via their research. Right? Provisional because they are never final and always subject to review and revision or rejection. The worldview is a function of various cultural and ideological biases. Right? So that's the very first part of the form, formal analytic structure is the worldview. Right? Um, it provides the lens through which the real world is seen and subsequent analyses are made. It includes the school of thought's view on the nature of humanity, its common goal or sense of economic justice, and what the members assume regarding the nature of economic inquiry, that is, their broad philosophical understanding of what it means to do research. Now, I do follow up with that in this chapter. Uh, it's particularly, I thought it was important to say um, what each school of thought has in mind in terms of their view of human behavior, of human nature. Right? Axioms, that's the second part of the formal analytic structure, are the unquestioned and indeed unquestionable concepts that every member of the school of thought accepts. For example, neoclassicism's belief that economic agents are rational, or Marxist assumption that all history is a history of class struggle. Methods, that's the third part, describe the acceptable or preferred means of studying phenomena in the paradigm. Uh, deduction, induction, surveys, or interviews, these are not looked upon highly uh, in neoclassical economics but they are the very core of many other social science disciplines, statistical analyses, and so on. Armed with the above, scientists observe the world around them. And so armed with why? Let me make sure you understand that. Armed with the above, armed with a worldview, all right, with their ideological and philosophical lens, armed with their axioms, the things that they think are unquestionably true. These, you're not a Marxist if you don't believe X, all right? Um, and their methods, the way they think, okay, well, how should we study the world? How is the world understandable? Armed with those, economists observe the world around them and determine which phenomena are of interest and therefore worthy of study. 
religious, political, corporate, and other forces play a role in this process, as controversies surrounding stem cell research and global warming have demonstrated. What is of interest is decided both socially and by the paradigm in question. Research is in the process of developing provisional explanations of these foci, right? uh, and these take the form of theories and models where the former are, are conjectures regarding the nature of individual phenomena, for example, the theory of supply or theory of demand, and the latter are sets of theories designed to explain some larger or more complex concept, for example, the market. Recall that what they're trying to, uh, trying to explain does not consist of a set of immutable, immutable innate characteristics within an objective universe. What economists perceive as the real world is a function of their worldview and is thus a conceptualized rather than objective reality. It is impossible for it to be otherwise. Uh, and thank you, Dr. Hans Jensen, my mentor, for coming up uh, or for teaching me that idea right there about the fact that we are dealing with a conceptualized reality and not a real reality. This bears repeating. Scientists cannot set out to discover objective facts since objective facts do not exist. We are inevitably limited to collecting and studying biased observations and, and interpretations of what we study. Under these circumstances, the best for which scientists can hope is to make some practical sense of what they see around them. But the good news is that this more modest goal is not only within our grasp, but it can be extremely useful. It means that we are able to develop working rules that enable us to interact successfully with our environment. Even though we can never, for a variety of reasons, declare any theory or model absolutely correct, we can nevertheless make a case for a particular provisional explanation as having been um, consistently useful or reliable. This is not insignificant. In fact, it is the actual pragmatic contribution of science to human welfare. We may never know if it is true that air traveling over a, a curved surface creates lift. But thus far, that characterization has led us from the Wright brothers at Kitty Hawk to NASA's space shuttle. For all we know, our conceptualization of the process is deeply flawed, and what's really occurring is related to forces we that we do not even suspect exist, but that has not, however, kept us from flying. Right? Now, this is not to say that everything that may be useful and reliable will be accepted, though. An acceptance must occur if a theory or model is to enter the paradigm's formal set of provisional explanations. Utility and reliability are certainly important factors in that process, but they are by no means the only ones. There are many forces in society and science that affect a theory or model's popularity, some of which have no serious connection to its specific merits. It has already been suggested that the broader culture can shape scientific debate. History is full of examples, from evolution to stem cell research and Galileo to Dr. Gavorkian. Science and scientists are part of a larger social unit and are necessarily constrained by that connection. Not that science is slave to non-scientific influences. It is a two-way street, such that it both affects and is affected by the broader set of values. The ideals we generally associate with the scientific subculture may be inserted into the broader debate because those members of society who are scientists successfully argue that they should be. This is why creationists find it necessary to supplement their religious positions with evidence regarding the fossil record. They feel obliged to at least appear to speak the scientist's language in order to be taken seriously. Okay, moving on to the next component of the school of thought, of a school of thought, uh, recommended applications or policies. So again, the first part is formal analytic structure is their worldview, you know, how do they, uh, their conceptualization of the world, their axioms, the things that they think are absolutely true. Um, I just said not to use the word true, didn't I? But nevertheless, within a school of thought, that, that's the, uh, if you don't believe, let's put it this way, if you don't believe X, then you're not a member of the group Y. Right? 
then there are methods, how do we study the world, and then there are provisional explanations. So you've gone down through, okay, I think I've explained the world. Now what? Well, what recommended applications do you have? In other words, what policies do you recommend? So that's what we're up to now. Recommended applications are policies. These arise from the comparison of, the, of two segments of the first component. The social goals contained in the worldview part of the formal analytic structure suggest what members of this paradigm think the world should look like, while the conceptualized reality from the provisional explanations shows what, how they think it really looks. If these are not the same, then some course of action will be suggested. Note that because these recommended applications or policies are informed by the school of thoughts in provisional explanations, two paradigms could perceive the exact same problem but recommend different solutions. For example, if unemployment is deemed to be unacceptably high, post-Keynesians might argue that this calls for a government job guarantee. Neoclassicals, on the other hand, may suggest the repeal of the minimum wage laws, while Marxists would argue that, the, uh, that unemployment is a natural consequence of capitalism and will not end until the workers revolt. Thus, they could agree on the problem, but disagree about the solution because their theories and models specify different lines of causation. The final component, uh, and this is where the institutional stuff really comes in, the final component is that associated with behavioral standards. While one will not find complete homogeneity within any subculture or individual school of thought, there are certain core values, practices, and beliefs that each member must follow to remain in good standing. These standards are violated at the risk of loss of status or expulsion. By contrast, conspicuous adherence may lead to increased prestige or promotion and success in promoting particular models and theories, especially in terms of what is selected for publication. Primary and secondary standards are obviously related to the items underneath the formal analytic structure, but they're not identical. Roughly speaking, the formal analytic structure represents what members of your school of thought say they value, while the standards show what's really, what's really rewarded in practice. They may also highlight certain themes, or, um, or particularly in secondary standards, oh, skipped a page, uh, certain themes, or this makes more sense, emphases not otherwise evident from the formal analytic structure. Secondary standards may be violated within certain limits, but primary ones are to be obeyed or you are not one of us. Take physicians as an example. For the sake of argument, assume that most, most members of this group are political conservatives who enjoy playing golf and reading mystery novels. Not sharing one or more of these interests might mean that a particular physician is less popular with her peers, but no one uh, would deny that she is still a physician. Violation of these secondary standards make participating in the subculture more difficult, as you find yourself excluded from various professional activities, for example, though not impossible. If, however, she, starts to, uh, she decides to start making diagnoses on the basis of star signs and planetary alignments, her behavior could lead to formal investigation and loss of license. This is true, even though among astrologists, such behavior would be considered perfectly appropriate. However, a primary standard of modern medicine is that disease is related to human physiological conditions and not the relative positions of heavenly bodies. She is perfectly free to disagree on the bases uh, that take primary standards as given. For example, she could offer a contrary opinion based on her analysis of a patient's biochemistry, the interpretation of a lab result, or the examination of an x-ray. None of these alone would be viewed as unphysicianly. But if she persists in arguing that her patient is ill because Venus is ascending, then she's out of the club. She's no longer a physician. Returning to the secondary standards, even egregious violations need not lead to dismissal, though they may harm your reputation. Say, for example, our physician starts, uh, decides to start coming to work in cut-off jeans, a t-shirt, and sandals. This may be viewed as unprofessional by both colleagues and patients, 
By itself, however, this may have no significant consequences. Or she could recommend herbal remedies to her patients. So long as this was alongside standard prescriptions, little may be said. Replacing the couches and armchairs in her waiting room with beanbag chairs might cause a murmur, but she's still a physician. However, violation of all three of these at once, wearing cut-off jeans, t-shirts, uh, and sandals, recommending herbal medicines, and decorating the waiting room with beanbag chairs will raise some concern within the physician's subculture. Depending on her status in the medical community and the existence of upsetting positives, Perhaps she's universally recognized as a brilliant diagnostician, in which case her transgressions may be viewed as amusing eccentricity. She could well face sanctions and certainly a fallen status. She will probably not be elected as the next president of the American Medical Association. This is significant for the subject of this book because adherence to standards has an impact on the chances that an economist's work is published. As will be discussed later, journal articles and books represent the primary means by which we communicate with each other, develop new theories and models, critique and amend existing ones, and so on. However, those unable to win the approval of the gatekeepers by adhering to established standards may not join the conversation. Standards really do not incidentally have to be forced on anyone. To begin with, those who consciously elect to, to join a subculture are probably predisposed to conform to those particular norms. If not, then the values in question may take hold as interaction with other members occurs. This is particularly likely if there's an initiation process, or a sizable investment to become accepted, or a significant reward for being associated with the subculture. Any doubts can be swept away by, by sincere conversion or the desire to believe. But even if one remains unconvinced, being a member at least requires paying lip service to the primary standards. A physician who, is, who truly believes her patient is ill because he is a Virgo must, if she is to keep her license, keep this to herself and offer a diagnosis that is consistent with accepted medical practice. Standards can evolve, of course, but this generally takes a long time in unusual circumstances. Powerful personalities, strong external forces, and so on may be involved, and it is just as likely that these lead to a new subculture or school of thought than change in the existing one. Institutions resist change. Returning to the point raised above, behavioral standards and the formal analytic structure of the paradigm are related, but necessarily distinct concepts. The formal analytic structure represents what those in a school of thought say they do, while the standards are closer to what they actually do. In certain branches of neoclassical economics, for example, their methodology places a great deal of weight on the predictive power of models. In practice, however, such tests are exceedingly rare. Not only is one not really expected to present this sort of evidence in defense of a theory, but the absence of such a tradition makes it difficult to imagine how it would even be done. For the student of economic paradigms, this is enlightening, because it is an important guide to what in practice really makes a theory or model acceptable. This is hardly a situation confined to neoclassicism. Every school of thought has things they say are important to them, but in reality they don't really pursue. Second, the behavioral standards are distinct from the formal analytic structure in the sense that they give us insight regarding something that the latter does not, hierarchies within schools of thought. Not every concept is considered equally important. Focusing one's work in a legitimate, but in the minds of your colleagues, inconsequential area will make it very difficult to contribute provisional explanations that will win acceptance and raise your status in the community. This implicit ranking manifests itself particularly in the secondary standards, and it exerts a strong influence over what research is done and which models and theories become popular. Um, what this is leading up to is how it is that certain 
approaches and schools of thought end up being excluded from journal publication and books. And well, a lot of this may be, I don't know, fairly obvious to you or me, this is written for like first year econ majors, right? So they don't know all this, right? This, this is brand new to them, all right? And, and so I'm hoping to lay this out in a way that is, oh, I guess, uh, structured rather than, hey, there's a lot of crap that goes on that means you don't get published. I, I wanted this to lay this out in a way that felt like it was a, um, uh, an explanation of, oh, what is this term that's used? Uh, pattern modeling, uh, to create a set of, of uh, rules of the situation that are internally consistent and make sense. Third, because a school of thought's worldview, axioms, methods, and models and theories are more likely to have been carefully and self-consciously developed, they will have a greater tendency to be internally consistent and instrumental in achieving their stated goals. But standards evolve more subtly and need not have any pragmatic aim. For example, you will not find any contractions in this book because they are considered unprofessional in scholarly writing. Does it actually make my, my argument more powerful to have said will not rather than won't in the previous sentence? Oh, the previous sentence says there weren't any, and then the next sentence has one. Oh my God. Don't read this book. Apparently it sucks. Um, of course not. In fact, it would have saved a bit of printer's ink. This is a ceremonial standard that serves no instrumental purpose but can actually obstruct it. Such rules are nevertheless taken very seriously and they guide group behavior every bit as much as those that are more pragmatic. Again, this is not to say that the utility and reliability of an explanation are unimportant, only that consistency with social and paradynamic standards is also critical and cannot be ignored when trying to understand how theory evolves. In addition, there may be structural factors that affect which standards are most vigorously enforced and which schools of thought and social groups are best placed to make their views the views of the discipline as a whole. Editorship of journals and management of graduate programs are key in this respect. While in society, in general, uh, those who are the most powerful will be in the best position to encourage the science that is consistent with their interests. Not too many Fortune 500 companies fund centers for Marxist economic research, though it would not be surprising to have seen, uh, seen them underlining underwriting a professorship in free enterprise. Those pursuing research agendas inconsistent with powerful social or scientific interests, regardless of how promising they may be in terms of, of utility and reliability, face an uphill battle. Any reasonable explanation of the evolution of theory, economic or otherwise, must be multidimensional and must consider more than just utility and reliability. It would be comforting to think that the best ideas always win, but the world's not that simple. The conclusion is that Real science is not just some coldly rational institution slowly stamping out ignorance and replacing it with truth about the objective world around us. It cannot be, because no one is impartial and there is no objective world. Instead, real science is necessarily an imperfect attempt to generate practical explanations of our biased observations. It is the scientist's hope that others will accept these as reasonable. This is not meant to imply that science is a pointless exercise dominated by superstition and vested interests. Far from it, the subculture that values skepticism, objectivity, logic, and evidence has brought us many tangible benefits. But it has done so while operating under a number of constraints, some unavoidable, some external, some internal. The state of economic theory today cannot be understood independent of these forces. Yay, finally economics, right? Economics, training, and apprenticeship, all right? Economists are members of the larger subculture of scientists. 
They share with them the belief that the world can be understood via the systematic study of its observed characteristics, and that skepticism, objectivity, and respect for logic and evidence are the values most likely to lead us to useful and reliable explanations. And they, too, are subject to the same sensory and cultural biases and external influences. What differ are the subject matter of their study and the nature of the internal forces, including primary and secondary standards, that affect their inquiry. With respect to the former, economics is anything associated with human social activities related to our well-being, especially as related to the production and distribution of goods and services and the allocation of resources. So what is economics? Such phenomena range from currency prices to antitrust legislation and from professional athletes' salaries to gender roles in the household. Contrary to popular belief, economics is not just about markets. Historical and contemporary economies dominated by command or tradition are of great interest too. Nor is it only about scarcity of resources. The Great Depression, for example, was marked by an excess of the most important resource in the economy, labor. While some individual schools of thought may employ a more limited definition, economics actually encompasses a wide variety of activities. Explaining the internal forces and primary and secondary standards governing our discipline requires a relatively detailed outline of the structure of the profession, including the manner in which economists are trained, the nature of their work, and how an individual enters the larger intellectual discussions that determine the course of theory. This will take some time, but I hope readers will find that this practical explanation, emphasizing the day-to-day -day activities of the professional economist, gives them a much better feel for how our discipline really works and where schools of thought exist. All this has an important impact on what sort of provisional explanations are developed and which ones become accepted, which of course is a major subject of this book. Let me say that again because it's really important and not necessarily obvious. The economic policies pursued by the Federal Reserve and the President and Congress are a function of what economic theorists, largely professors at universities, argue make the most sense. But, and this is the critical part, what they successfully argue is in turn a function of the structure and behavioral standards of the economists' discipline, of the economics discipline. Hence, the structural and behavioral standards of the economics discipline affect policy. I'm going to read that sentence again. The, structural, the, the structure and behavioral standards of the economics discipline affect economics, economic policy. Think of it this way. The essential charge of a police department is pretty straightforward. Uh, they enforce laws enacted by the legislature and apprehend or find suspected lawbreakers. Guilt or innocence is determined elsewhere. But the sort of outcomes that, create, that, that creates can vary considerably. For example, what if officers received bonuses for writing speeding tickets? Everything else being equal, their local community would appear to have more speeders than others, even if this were not true. Conversely, if writing a speeding ticket involved much more tedious paperwork than in other departments, then apparent speeding would, would decline. If promotions depended on arrests, then that would affect law enforcement patterns, as would punishing officers whose arrests did not lead to convictions. In short, the incentive structure set up by the department directly affects outcomes. Even with the same laws and number of lawbreakers, it changes who gets arrested and for what. It creates a bias. But this is inevitable. There is no such thing as a structure that does not create a bias. The question is, um, which structure creates the desired outcomes, right? But wait, there's more. There's a difference between the structure of the system and the culture of the system. Even if it is written into the regulations of the, uh, of the local police department that bonuses are paid for writing tickets, were there an unwritten code among officers, a behavioral standard? That ticket writing is not something a real officer does, this will dampen or even nullify the effect of the bonus system. 
If officers feel more loyalty to each other than, than to the code of the law, dishonest officers may be protected. On the other hand, if their sense of professionalism is very high, corruption will not be tolerated. Understanding realized outcomes requires knowing more than just the formal charge of the institution in question. I will return to the original uh, point. There are parallels to all of these in the economics discipline. If you truly want to understand why the financial crisis occurred, you need to know not just the theories behind the relevant policies, but also the behavioral standards generating those policies and the inherent biases that they create. Right, now, before proceeding, note first that while the following is meant to apply in economics in general, to, uh, to economics in general, by necessity it leans towards the practices followed by the school of thought that is the most influential in setting standards uh, in the profession neoclassicism. This is not altogether inappropriate, as almost every single economist in the world, regardless of the route she eventually chose, was initially trained as a neoclassical. This is also primarily a description of the system as it exists in the United States. However, those aspects emphasized here should be similar enough in other countries that it should not create an insurmountable problem. Note, too, there is no attempt uh, made to identify the components of a common formal analytic structure uh, that all economists believe. I'm sure it could be done, but it'd be so general that uh, it would be a waste of time, and after all, the rest of the book is going to break it down into individual schools of thought. Last, remember that there's no such thing as a view except from a viewpoint. Hence, while I have tried very hard to remain objective in my analysis, that is not the same as saying that I am neutral. In point of fact, I think the current system is broken. This is so because it does not generate the vigorous debate among schools of thought that, imperfect, that the imperfect nature of scientific inquiry requires for the development of useful and reliable explanations. Since it is not true that scientists are unbiased protectors of truth, provisional explanations should be regularly and openly challenged, especially by those from opposing paradigms. This is extremely rare in real life. Primary and secondary behavioral standards and specific structure of modern economics instead create incentives that encourage conformity and monism, i.e. the belief that only one uh, legitimate view exists. Monism as opposed to pluralism. Institutional inertia takes over and muffles criticism and in extreme cases punishes those with contrary opinions with banishment. They are no longer considered economists. And I have absolutely heard that said about people who are outstanding scholars but they weren't neoclassical. Just heard it last week, actually. Very little significant debate takes place in our discipline. The review that follows reflects this criticism. All right, here comes economics. The beginning of economics is traditionally dated to 1776, the year that Adam Smith's An Inquiry into the Nature and Causes of the Wealth of Nations was published. However, it was not until the late 1800s that it emerged as an academic discipline unto itself. Today, the training and apprenticeship of the economist has become highly formalized. This begins at the undergraduate level, where education is dominated by the textbook approach. The advantage is the standardization of course material across universities and the fact that it suggests that an effort has been made to make these concepts accessible to students. In addition, the existence of a text means that a new preparation is easier to develop, which is particularly good news to the brand new faculty member. The disadvantage is the tendency to avoid anything that might harm sales. Controversial, unique, and complex subjects, for example. New ideas, too, may take a long time to reach texts. In addition, it may stifle innovation as instructors accustomed to this culture may avoid creating courses for which a ready-made textbook does not already exist. These factors combine to create a tendency for undergraduate education to be somewhat generic and potentially bland because, of the textbook, because the textbook culture encourages aiming at the lowest common denominator. This is most likely to be a problem at the introductory level where the market is the largest. 
There are energetic and enthusiastic instructors who will find means to enhance the classroom experience, and there are good textbooks, but they face these constraints. In terms of subject matter, the central focus is on teaching students, quote, how to think like an economist, unquote. What this means is learning to evaluate alternatives in a formalized cost-benefit framework and to consider the incentives facing individuals and how these might create unanticipated consequences. This is often described in terms of, immu of immutable and universally accepted laws and concepts like self-interest, utility maximization, demand, supply, comparative advantage, equilibrium, rationality, and so on. These will be organized into formal models and applied to a variety of situations with advanced classes, international economics, labor, economic history, for example, presenting specific applications of the common tools to new, to new topic areas. In most programs, it is emphasized that economics is, in contrast to what was said earlier in this chapter, value-free. The discipline is thus described to students as one in which all analyses are completely objective. The core concepts are acknowledged as facts, and controversies concern only matters of degree. In such a world, there is no point in discussing alternative schools of thought because they must have already been harvested for their useful ideas. As in the simplistic version of science discussed earlier in the chapter, the current state of economic theory is presented as the result of a steady and progressive process of separating fact from fiction, wherein a single school of thought totally and appropriately dominates the conversation. Note that the textbook culture fits nicely with this since it prefers standardization. So in other words, your typical introductory economics class and on up, they present our discipline as if, well, no, it's value-free. Uh, positive economics is value-free. We're not making any value judgments here. And everyone accepts this law of demand thing and law of supply and comparative advantage and so forth. Um, there is no actual um, controversy. Who do I have that quote in here from Siegfried? I don't know. If I, if I don't, I'll, read it. I'll, I'll come up with it here at the end. All right. This does not describe every program, but it is a common base from which any variations arise. Those who approve of this state of affairs argue that student, students learn to use a sophisticated set of tools to analyze novel situations in a discipline that has consistently and successfully worked to replace bad theory with good. And indeed, it is true that economics majors are always among the high scorers on graduate placement exams, and there is evidence that they are also among those who advance most quickly in the workplace. If something is broken in the economics major, proponents say, then it is difficult to see what it is based on these results. It is a rigorous discipline that is feared by many students. Those who select economics take a certain pride in this. Not everyone is so enthusiastic, however, and they worry in particular that portraying our discipline as completely objective and free of controversy is not only false, but it leaves students at the stage of dualism where all questions are viewed in black and white with decidedly right and wrong answers, as opposed to moving them to higher stages of cognitive development, multiplicity, contextual relativism, contextually appropriate decisions, and so forth. Reliance on multiple choice exams may also contribute to this naivete. This view implies that while the average economic major graduates with excellent problem-solving skills, whether or not she is equipped to understand where to apply them, what limitations they may have, and when other approaches might be more appropriate is an open question. Regardless of the strengths and weaknesses of this approach, some students, including your author and uh, reader, emerge from the undergraduate experience with a desire to become an economist. To do so, particularly one who is able to contribute provisional explanations to the body of existing knowledge, one must almost certainly earn a, earn a PhD. In the United States, 
This requires taking the graduate record exam. I understand some of this is evolving since COVID, but nevertheless, uh, graduate record exam, sending off transcripts and applications to various universities. Depending on career aspirations and the desired areas of emphasis, the hopeful may also consult one of many departmental rankings that exist. Once accepted, the PhD candidate will find that many of the classes sound very similar to those offered in her undergraduate curriculum. These may include macroeconomic and microeconomic theory, labor economics, public finance, international trade and payments, and so on. There are also courses not necessarily offered uh, to those earning the bachelor's degree, econometrics, mathematical, method, uh, mathematical economics, game theory, and so on. In some classes, particularly those associated with the history of economics and economic history, are conspicuous by their absence. This is a function of the heavy shift towards developing advanced mathematical skills. This is evident not only from the mix of courses, but also the content of those that on the surface remain the same. An undergraduate international trade class, for example, might consist of a mixture of graphically and, and algebraically presented theory and institutional detail. At the graduate level, the latter may be almost entirely absent, while the theories are now explained using matrices and calculus. This transformation is so complete that 57% of the graduate students surveyed counted excellence in mathematics as very important to success in their program, while only 3% gave having a thorough knowledge of the economy the same rating. This is from a very famous Klammer and Kolander book from 1990. One student commented, you can walk in off the street and take the courses and not know what the Fortune 500 is and blaze through with flying colors. You can also come in knowing the difference between subordinated debentures and junk bonds and fail miserably. All right, now though some economists view this as problematic, many others do not. In the typical graduate program, students learn the implicit lesson that what people say and what they do are not necessarily the same. Hence, relying on surveys, testimony, personal recollections, or any other form of qualitative data is seen as inherently suspect. This skepticism is extended to institutional and historical detail. One's inherent bias may serve, it is argued, to cloud rather than illuminate the issue. Hence, economists should rely on abstract reasoning and intuition. But, so as to ensure that this does not become uncontrolled speculation, it is expressed in advanced mathematics. This, they believe, provides the rigor necessary to apply basic econometric economic principles to complex problems while at the same time maintaining objectivity. It is also the unstated reason for the move away from history and institutions and toward regressions and equations. Some schools of thought disagree strongly with this methodological position, saying that bad ideas expressed in advanced mathematics are still bad ideas. The math alone cannot change that fact. But it is nevertheless a part of the economist's standard training in most programs. A self-selection process takes place whereby those who find this shift too challenging, uninteresting, or unconvincing leave. Those who remain have either fully endorsed the methodological principles implicit in this approach, or they're willing to endure until they have earned their degree. In the United States, coursework fills about two uh, to three years of the PhD candidate's curriculum. Note that this level of education is much less textbook oriented with, with many journal articles, the primary means of communication among academic economists as assigned as class reading. Homework and projects are relatively rare as exams and papers are the preferred method of evaluation. During this time, the student may also be serving as, as a teaching or research assistant or somewhat later, an independent classroom instructor. And they will likely be attending seminars where drafts of professional papers are presented by in-house or visiting professors. It is by this process that the student is being introduced to the values and practices of the subcul subculture of the professional economist. 
through formal and informal channels, personal interactions with peers and professors, observations, classwork, and so on, they are beginning to learn and internalize the primary and secondary standards of the economics profession. One of the most basic secondary standards is that research is respected over teaching. This does not mean that individual faculty do not necessarily admire the creative and hardworking instructor, but there are, there's definitely a hierarchy. Someone who is a successful researcher, while lacking classroom skills, is almost certain to earn a higher salary and garner more professional respect than the outstanding teacher who never publishes. Part of the rationalization is that the research has the potential to reach many more people and lives than teaching, although in reality the, the overwhelming majority of it does not. In a world where there were 34,573 journal articles published in 2008 alone, one has to wonder how many of those had any impact whatsoever. A more pragmatic reason to value research is that economists who publish, publish regularly are more likely to keep up with developments in their field. Once you earn a PhD, you're on your own. There are no refresher courses or periodic exams you must take. However, if you are able to publish your research, then this may indicate a continued mastery of your specialization. Well-published faculty might also <clears throat> be more likely to be able to move beyond the textbook approach and build a course that would be relevant and interesting for the student. Even in institutions where research is not the top priority, this is obviously a plus. Of course, requiring faculty to research is not the only means of achieving this end, but it's the easiest for the university to employ because they don't have to judge it. Right, somebody does that outside the university at the journal. Some worry, though, that the focus on research may have become more ceremonial and instrumental. Whether or not this is true is difficult to say, but it is certainly easy to imagine such a situation arising for a number of reasons. First, research is competitive. Just because you enter the game does not mean that you will succeed. In fact, most do not. A publication is therefore a trophy in a way that a classroom preparation is not. In that way, they would naturally serve to create distinctions among faculty members. In addition, such trophies are easy for administrators to count in determining promotions and raises, particularly in contrast to trying to evaluate faculty teaching. Note also that if research forms the primary means of promotion, then those making policy will generally be among the best published members of the university community. They would have a strong desire to want to believe that research is important. Last, inasmuch as humans tend to emulate the behavior of the most respected members of our subculture, this creates a tendency for even teaching-oriented schools to want to become a miniature MIT or Harvard. This means publishing, regardless of whether or not that serves an instrumental end. Um, and I want to interject here. I got nothing against it. I, 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 um, I think that publishing can serve a very pragmatic end. The only point that this section here is making is that I'm not sure that's always necessarily the way it works out, and I can—I I don't know how to judge whether or not requirements of research are being used pragmatically or not. I don't know how to how to test that, but I can certainly easily imagine scenarios wherein that's not what's going on, right? And that—that's what that discussion was just now. So I don't want to imply that I'm pro or con research. It doesn't work out that way. It—it. If it is for a pragmatic reason, then absolutely you should be requiring your faculty to do research. Our students at TCU should not be paying the, 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 the um, tuition they are if they're not taking a class from somebody who hasn't just read the, uh, the, the, the textbook. Uh, I got to tell you that the PhD doesn't prepare you for teaching the class. All right? you, you, uh, the research you do later makes a huge difference. All right? So, as implied above, that hierarchy applies to institutions as well as individuals. Rankings of academic departments are not based on teaching skill, but on number of publications and citations. In addition, there are more preferred topic areas. High-level or more general theory is thought to be more impressive than policy-oriented or applied work. 
The use of mathematics is considered superior to institutional or historical detail, and research in certain schools of thought and topic areas is regarded as better than others. Students will absorb all this in classes and, and other interactions, and this newfound knowledge about the standards of the discipline will be put to use in starting the dissertation. This begins after coursework, and comprehensive exams in the field, uh, chosen fields are complete. I assume it works the same way everywhere. I know my, my daughter's finishing up her PhD right now. Uh, after you take all your courses, then you choose fields. I chose international economics and the history of economics. I had to take exams in those fields that until I passed them, I wasn't technically allowed to start my dissertation. And first with the help of, so now you're gonna start your dissertation. First with the help of one or more faculty members, the student writes a proposal. This is then formally presented and defended before a committee of professors selected by the student. They will evaluate its significance and feasibility relative to the, to, to the candidate's need to prove her ability to conduct independent research according to the current disciplinary standards. Once the proposal has been successfully defended, possibly with numerous amendments, the student sets to work. The dissertation usually requires two to five years during which the student may take a course or two, but will largely focus on writing. She will probably also be teaching her own classes. The dissertation itself may consist of a single book-length thesis or a number of shorter ones. With the, uh, with, this, I'm sorry, with the continuous advice and critique of her committee, the student develops her argument while being careful to follow the standards of the discipline. This is especially important if she plans a career in academia, where she will almost certainly be required to publish. If she can get an article or two out of her dissertation, it will be a big help to her earlier in her career. Many students never finish their dissertation. It takes a great deal of self-discipline to write something for which there is no deadline and no teacher pressuring you. Your committee members have their own work to do, and while the vast majority are very happy to help their charges by reading and commenting on various drafts, this represents a lot of extra and largely unrewarded work for them. So the responsibility lies solely with the student. But as the goal is to test the ability to, con to conduct independent research, this doesn't seem altogether inappropriate. If the student does finish, the last formal step is a dissertation defense. Assuming that all members have already read and approved the work, this is largely a formality. Um, even then, difficult questions might be posed as a part of a ritualistic rite of passage. If successful, there are handshakes, hugs, and pats on the back as the new member is admitted to the tribe. If not, the student goes off to revise. Those who emerge with PhD in hand are now formally economists. The next step is finding employment. Many will seek jobs in academia, though there are numerous opportunities in the private sector and government. As the private sector and government jobs generally do not contribute to the development of theory, they will not be discussed here. It is at universities where most of the research is conducted, with some important work done in think tanks as well. Entering academia usually means becoming a professor. At educational institutions in the United States, new PhDs are typically hired at the assistant professor level. Their responsibilities will fall into three primary areas, teaching, research, and service. The weights placed upon these vary considerably by, by university, but roughly speaking, the more classes you are expected to teach, usually two to four a semester, the more relaxed the research expectation. However, as suggested above, since the latter can be counted in a way that is not possible with the former, it usually plays a more visible role, i.e. The, the research tends to play a more visible role even when you're teaching a lot of classes. Note that even though the pressure of graduate school is gone, this is still a tense period for many economists as they are technically on probation until around their sixth year. At that point, they are expected to present a portfolio of teaching, service, and research accomplishments that will convince the university to grant them promotion to, to associate professor and tenure. The privileges associated with tenure vary somewhat, but it basically means that it becomes more difficult to be fired. 
Ideally, this is supposed to protect academic freedom in the, in the sense that one cannot be terminated for teaching or researching unpopular or controversial topics. This is obviously a major decision for both parties. For the candidate, if she is unsuccessful, she must leave the university and look for new employment. For the, univers for the university, they want to do their best not to tenure someone who will later prove to be unproductive. The probationary period can be a very important part of an economist's life. It is the apprenticeship phase that sets into motion patterns that continue throughout her career. Without question, the most challenging part of the portfolio building process is what? What do you think? What do you guess? That's right, research. Service work is not only easy to find if one so desires, but it's, rel it's rated relatively low anyway. No one who performs competently in teaching and research is going to be denied tenure on the basis of not having served on enough committees. Teaching, I believe Melanie's home, I hear the garage, I'm, I'm over the garage right now, so I hear the garage door going up. Uh, teaching is a great deal more demanding uh, and preparing several new classes can be very time consuming. This is particularly true because graduate programs rarely spend much, if any, effort on teaching students how to teach. It's not a priority since earning a PhD in economics does not necessarily mean a career in academics. As a consequence, the brand new professor will have to expend considerable effort crafting her courses and discovering and developing her personal skill set. For some, this is a pleasant and successful journey. For others, it is not. And I am going to stop reading for just a moment while I let the dog out of here, because otherwise he's going to go insane wanting to go see Melanie. Uh, pardon me. Whew, okay. Well, that was not Melanie. That was a garbage truck. And I would greatly appreciate the viewers and listeners not passing on to Melanie that I confused a garbage truck for her. All right. Back to where I was. How this, is a, how this is reflected in the portfolio is difficult to say. I don't want to suggest that universities do not take the teaching requirement seriously. Many, if not most, certainly do. But as suggested at several points above, it is very difficult to quantify the, the classroom skills of an instructor, especially with sufficient confidence to justify terminating someone's employment. Are poor student evaluations an indicator of insufficient time spent in classroom preparation or of a fair but demanding instructor? Even if we have our suspicions, this is a very serious decision. With the best will in the world, it is, very, it is simply very difficult for university officials to measure the quality of teaching. To some extent, they rely on self-selection. Newly minted PhDs who do not enjoy time spent in, the, uh, in front of students will probably not apply for jobs at colleges that require heavy teaching loads. Other forms of pressure can and will be applied too. But in the end, it's relatively difficult to deny tenure to someone on the basis of poor teaching alone. Research, however, is a different story. It can easily be counted, sorted, and ranked. Even better, the evaluative bodies responsible for approving or rejecting submissions are external and composed of recognized authorities in the faculty member's discipline. Whether or not a faculty member gets a paper accepted by a journal has nothing to do with the university. The editor, probably a well-known and widely published economist, will receive the submission and make a, pre a preliminary evaluation. If the topic area does not fit well with what the journal publishes, or if it is obviously unprofessional, the editor will reject it outright. Otherwise, the author's name will be removed and the submission sent to several economists who are experts in the relevant areas. At this point, anywhere from a month to a year or more may pass while referees review the paper. When they're finished, each will send their editor a critique along with a recommendation. The standard range includes reject, revise and resubmit, accept with minor revisions, and accept without revision. The majority of papers, and I'm guessing on the order of 75 to 90%, will receive one of the first two, i.e. Uh, reject or revise and resubmit. The editor will consider her referee's evaluations and decide how to proceed. She has the last word. Authors of accepted papers will rejoice, for they now have something to add to their portfolios. The sole fact of having written and submitted the paper would have counted for next to nothing. 
Likewise, presentations of original research at, at professional conferences, institutes, or other universities are nice as fillers in the candidate's application, but no number of these would be viewed as substituting for a publication. Nor would writing for a general non-specific audience be help, a non-scientific audience be helpful. In addition, in economics, book chapters or even entire books are not treated as the equivalent of a journal article because only journal articles go through the rigorous process of peer review by an editor and a team of experts. Uh, one must have their seal of approval to build a portfolio that will guarantee tenure and promotion. Now, many departments also employ strict rankings such that only publications in a handful of select journals give any real credit before, uh, toward tenure. The recipient of a revise and resubmit will uh, all, all I'm sorry, so I'm, I've got another topic here. The recipient of a revise and resubmit will almost certainly do so, hoping that the second round will end in her favor. Uh, those whose papers were rejected must decide if the manuscript is salvageable, and if so, whether to rewrite it before sending it to a different journal and playing the waiting game all over again. Depending on how close the individual is to the tenure uh, decision, this can be a very tense and frustrating period. Near the end of the probationary period, candidates submit their completed portfolios. These generally cycle up from the department to the college to the university, with various administrators and faculty evaluating the materials along the way. Successful candidates are promoted to associate professor and given tenure. If they wish, they may remain at this rank for the rest of their careers. Otherwise, with the passage of an appropriate number of years, the associate may apply for promotion to the final rank of full professor. The procedure is similar, but there's a much greater emphasis on research and, of course, the unsuccessful candidate is not out of work. Indeed, she is free to try again once she is added to her portfolio. The post-tenure career of an academic economist will continue to involve varying degrees of research, teaching, and service, but with less direct pressure to reach a particular threshold with respect to the first. One of the goals of the tenure process was to select only those who would willingly engage in this level of research appropriate to that institution. Personal goals vary as some professors move into administration, others into more popular writing, and still others into even more scholarship. Theoretically, the tenure professor is free to pursue different paths, although the rank of full professor and various other important perks are still reserved for those who um, uh, have, are most heavily involved in research. All right, is this the last section here, John? We're getting close. Uh, yeah, it looks like it, looks like it. Second to last, all right. Now we've got economics, schools of thought. These, then, are the people primarily responsible for the development of economic theory. After their formal training, which takes place over roughly 10 years of undergraduate and graduate education, they may participate in the academic discourse that occurs in our discipline. This discourse is usually segregated by school of thought and takes place in essentially two places, scholarly literature and the conferences organized by professional associations. The scholarly literature is generated by journals and book publishers, each of which tends to specialize in a particular economic paradigm or subject area. The Journal of Economic Issues, for example, is an institutionalist journal. Science and Society publishes Marxist work, and the American Economic Review focuses on neoclassical theory. Each school of thought may also recognize an unofficial hierarchy of the journals in which they publish. Economists wanting to stay abreast of development would look first to the leading journals in their school of thought. These are the face and front line of every paradigm, and it is also where you want to be seen. Though they tend to earn relatively less respect than articles, books can be important too. This is particularly likely if the author has already established a reputation in journals, or if it's a classic of some sort. The role of conferences and professional associations in the development of economic theory is less direct. The former are organized meetings of economists at which unpublished research is presented, usually in the form of a 15 to 20 minute oral report, nowadays with lots and lots of PowerPoints. 
Such gatherings vary from meetings of thousands at large hotels and convention centers to a few dozen in university classrooms. Participation requires the submission of a proposal to the conference organizer, often an officer in the relevant organization. Presenters are organized into panels by topic and, and papers may be discussed by a conference volunteer or the audience members. It can be very formal or very relaxed. It can be very spirited or very sedate. Conferences and associations sponsoring them are tied to specific schools of thought and subject areas just as much as journals and publishing houses are. Unlike the journals and publishing houses, however, their impact on theory is minimal. Conferences are largely social, and the papers presented there, even if exciting and thought-provoking, are reaching a very small audience. The author hoping to gain more exposure for her ideas uh, would likely send her presentation paper to a journal. Conferences do play an important role, though. Even in the Internet age, a face-to-face -face interaction can be a uniquely effective means of facilitating the exchange of ideas, association planning, and the establishment of professional contacts. But each school of thought really exists on the pages of books and especially journals. It is there that the meaningful conversations take place, even if we get PowerPoint previews at convention hotels. Not every published article has a significant impact. How can they? And I cited those numbers for you earlier. Nor is this out of line with, most, with what most of the authors expect. The majority of professional economists are doing uh, something that is akin to what Thomas Kuhn called normal science. The relatively routine work of slowly accumulating detail in accord with the paradigm's established theory. This may involve the application of core concepts to an unexplored area. Marxist ideas of classes related to gender issues, for example or the resolution of an open but not necessarily critical question. Does Keynes's general theory assume endogenous or exogenous money? This sort of work can lead to lively and useful conversations, perhaps later resulting in significant insights. Generally speaking, however, there are a great many articles that are relatively trivial in terms of their contribution to broad theory. These still may serve a purpose, however, in terms of helping the author develop her professional skill set or as a useful, if not essential, components of a larger body of, of literature. But they don't, require, they don't end up on anybody's required, sorry, required reading list. Um, and uh, to, to interject something that's not in the book here, um, I mean, honestly, I write articles for myself because I'm trying to figure something out. I'm curious about it. And if somebody reads it, that's great. Uh, I, I mean, I want someone to read it. I want it to be cited. But honestly, so much of it is just pure curiosity-driven. Right? And you are uh, developing your skills, and you are understanding your discipline better. How does an article receive the distinction of being on somebody's required reading list. Well, there's no single explanation other than the fact that, uh, other than to say it proved significant. But since significance is in the eye of the beholder, and more importantly, of a journal referee, this is hardly an unambiguous answer. We can say that a multiplicity of variables contribute, and that these are a function of the very same factors that determine whether or not the research is published in the first place, primary and secondary standards. Applications of these deemed by the scientific community as particularly clever or timely or unique take center stage, possibly as lead articles in the highest ranking journals. They can inspire other authors, receive frequent citation, and are assigned in class and potentially change how economists think about some aspect of their work. This is how theory evolves. It is also how the standards may evolve. It has been mentioned on a number of occasions that while the acceptance of, of the primary ones is vital to the success of a provisional explanation, one may reject one or more of the secondary ones and still achieve notoriety. The key is to justify that rejection in the context of the other standards. In fact, such an achievement might well serve to make an idea, quote, significant, unquote. 
and it may eventually lead to a paradigm-wide revision in the list of standards. Or it could cause a splintering of the school of thought into subgroups or into an entirely new paradigm. History has been witness to both, and it's impossible to predict a priori which will occur. Within Marxism, for example, Barron and Sweezy's classic study rejected one of Marx's core arguments regarding the trend rate of profit in capitalist economies. However, it did so in a way that complemented many of the other standards, and it was, in at least some economists' opinions, more consistent with the historical data. There are limits to this, of course. There must be something that is ultimately Marxist about Marxism. But it gives a basic idea of how evolution in economics takes place. It's a result of a complex interplay among the paradynamic and disciplinary standards, external forces, personalities, and the structure of the profession. A comment made earlier still stands. However, institutions resist change. Normal science is the dominant activity of our profession, and most of our time is spent solving puzzles rather than rewriting economic theory. The example of Barron and Sweezy raises one more issue that should be addressed before detailing the standards that exist in the economics profession, the interplay between theory and evidence in the evolution of paradigms. It was noted above that their revision was viewed as some by being, uh, as being more consistent with historical trends than Marx's original. One may wonder if this sort of adjustment to fit real-world observations is common, and generally it's not. This is so, first of all, because, as noted repeatedly, institutions resist change. Approaching economics from a particular perspective can quite naturally lead, for instance, to one only noticing data that conform to your view. And even if contrary evidence is detected, it may take a considerable accumulation to lead you to reject the school of thought in which you were trained, earned tenure, and established a reputation. Furthermore, what weight of evidence should we con uh, consider sufficient to force the alteration of a theory? Is one observation among thousands enough to indict a paradigm's core concept or model? After all, ours is a discipline in which controlled experimentation is impossible. Our data are always contaminated by the fact that everything else is never equal. There is no easy answer to this. And it is because of this that one may see one school of thought arguing vehemently that another's explanations are completely inconsistent with real-world observations, while the latter sees no problem at all. Ultimately, a school of thought's worldview, axioms, methods, theories, models, and policy prescriptions must be consistent with the world they purport to explain if they are to be useful and reliable aids. Determining the degree of consistency, however, is very difficult, particularly given the realistic view of science wherein absolute objectivity is impossible and the theory determines what we see. If this were not true, there'd only be one school of thought and this book wouldn't be necessary. Okay, this is now the last major section here before the conclusion, so not too much longer to go, which is good news for both of us. <laughs> All right. Economics, colon, primary and secondary standards of behavior. Throughout this chapter, the important role played by behavioral standards in determining success and the status of the economist has been emphasized. While they were already introduced in the earlier discussion of the education and career of the, of the professor, they will be reviewed and more clearly specified here. Standards vary by school of thought, of course, but many are common to all economists. The key primary ones are the subject matter, that is, you're not an economist unless you're doing economics, the belief that the world can be understood via the systematic study of its observed characteristics, and that skepticism, objectivity, and respect for logic and reason are the values most likely to lead to useful and reliable explanations. And to go back to something earlier in the chapter, and I keep emphasizing this, uh, I'm, I'm arguing that that the pragmatic, realistic thing that science can do for us is to create useful and reliable explanations. Useful and reliable explanations. Useful and reliable explanations. So what leads us to these things? Uh, skepticism, objectivity, and respect for logic and reason. And all economists believe this. 
Someone convicted of not following these would suffer consequences. For example, those at the training stage would find that their instructors would not assign a passing grade if they insisted on submitting assignments as short stories uh, or analyses of plant biology or apartment building designs. All worthy endeavors, but not economics. All right, this, this violates a primary standard. Likewise, the professor who drifted into these areas would find that unless a very convincing link could be made, she is no longer considered an economist. The main gatekeepers in this latter case would be the journal editors, meaning that the cost of string would be banishment from publication, a death sentence for an untenured professor. Quite right. Why should an economics department tenure someone who has spent the last six years publishing in chemistry journals? She needs to find a new job. The pursuit of systematic study as guided by skepticism, objectivity, logic, and evidence is taken just as seriously, though it may be somewhat more difficult to prove violations than with the subject matter. Again, the enforcers will be the students' instructors at the undergraduate and graduate levels and the journal editors thereafter. Failing to adhere to these standards is the equivalent of being unscientific, a label that every self-respecting scientist obviously wants to avoid, and something that would represent a real obstacle in gaining the approval of departments, associations, conferences, journals, and publishers. While the specifics may vary from school of thought to school of thought, all share these primary standards uh, in spirit. These are very basic and uncontroversial, and as such, should serve as a common bond among economists of every sort. As an aside, recognizing these commonalities is extremely important if we are to transform our discipline into one marked by serious but respectful debate. Marxists and Austrians already know where they disagree, but they may need to be reminded of where they agree. It is more difficult to, to identify a common set of secondary standards, but Table 2.1 attempts to do just that. Recall that, there may be, that these may be violated with little consequence if in small doses, particularly if there are offsetting factors. Strict adherence, on the other hand, can enhance one's position. As suggested above, the table uses the earlier description of training, uh, and, and I'm not going to show you the table here. Well, I'll show it to you real quick. Um, I'm not going to go over it, because I don't know that we gain that much at this stage. All right, let's see here. And come on, focus. That too small. Now, if you want, if you want me, to, if you want to email me at j.harvey@tcu.edu, I can send you a screenshot of that table. But it's a table of what are some of the secondary standards of behavior, and, and maybe I'll just sort of skim through it real quick. Um, and I'm looking here at the text. And now I'll just kind of skim over the, uh, the table. All right, so what the table has is under the category of, of um, undergraduate, uh, there's a preference in economics for formalized modeling processes. Absolutely. That this is a, a secondary standard that you don't have to do this, but your position will be enhanced if you use a formalized modeling process. Uh, economics is emphasizing the application of logic and analytical skills is another one mentioned. These are all very, very general ones. Under the graduate one, research as the most important indicator of the value of an economist or a department is a very powerful secondary standard and shared pretty much across all uh, schools of thought. Preference for general theories over specific ones. Ancestor worship in the form of citations that legitimize an argument by linking it to a respected name or publication. My gosh, I do this all the time. It was as Cain said, as the good book says, all right? And uh, apprenticeship, pre-tenure professor. Hierarchy of journals, a very common um, secondary standard. Importance of journal articles over all other publication types, and so on. So it has sort of a list here of the things that are, uh, and it has some very specific neoclassical ones, and, and I'm not going to make you listen to all that, uh, because we're about to break it down by individual school of thought. But, but let me do read you the last chapter here. I'm sorry, the, the last couple of paragraphs of that section. 
There's nothing wrong with this, of course, in other words, of, of having all these secondary standards. If those rules are well considered and effective in terms of achieving the universities, professions, and society's goals. In fact, if science worked as in the naive view, these might represent an effective guard against the intrusion of subjective and extra scientific influences, but that's not the case. And so behavioral standards that encourage conservatism and discourage innovation should at the very least give us pause for thought, because that's what they do. When you have all these standards, then think outside the box, oh, except don't, if you want tenure. You need to make sure you think really tightly inside this box, right? So, if science really were the slow process of replacing, you know, uh, fiction with fact, then, hey, thinking inside the box would be fantastic. But if it's not, as this chapter argued, then really we need to be encouraging people, at least at some level, to try things that aren't necessarily approved by the uh, uh, secondary standards of behavior. Now, uh, let's see. In a world where bias, perception, politics, religion, and other subjective and non-rational forces inevitably impact theory development, it is pragmatic to discourage economists from exploring alternative, uh, I'm sorry, is it pragmatic to uh, discourage economists from exploring alternative perspectives by decreeing that on, the only worthwhile publications are those few journals that most vigorously defend one particular set of secondary standards? Journal rankings may be the biggest problem in the discipline. All right, uh, that when the department has a ranking, okay, then you've already just said I can't publish anything in feminist economics because it's not on the list. Right, and that would be a very common scenario. Um, right. If Marxists, feminists, institutionalists, post-Keynesians, Austrians, and new institutionalists, and now there's a new chapter in this version, uh, ecological, are not crackpots. If these are instead intelligent, hard-working individuals who share with neoclassicals a strong respect for systematic analysis, skepticism, objectivity, logic, and evidence, then they should, in fact, they need to have a scholarly forum in which they converse. Unfortunately, the far more common situation is that members of one school of thought dismiss some or all of the others as unscientific and therefore unworthy of their time. For me, there is not a single paradigm from which I have not learned something unique and insightful. This does not mean that I think they're all correct any more than each of those uh, each of a compete, competing diagnoses of a patient's disease can all be right. But presumably, the method by which we cure our patient begins with an open discussion of the strengths and weaknesses of each theory, not with an a priori suppression of all but one. The same is true of the economy. Last uh, section, three paragraphs, conclusions. Economists are scientists who study human social activities related to our material well-being. They believe that these can be understood via the systematic analysis of their observed characteristics and that skepticism, objectivity, and respect for logic and evidence are the values most likely to lead us to useful and reliable explanations. Economics, like science in general, is affected by sensory and cultural biases. In addition, because it's a social activity, the popularity of a theory or model involves more than just its ability to explain the phenomenon in question. It is also necessary to account for politics, personalities, prejudices, religion, vested interests, jealousies, and so on. To put it in neoclassical microeconomic terms, these are the constraints under which we operate when trying to maximize our knowledge of the economy. This is inevitable, but those who consciously acknowledge the role of these factors are better placed to minimize their impact. For every school of thought in economics, one can construct a formal paradigm. This is the object of the rest of this book. Primary and secondary standards of behavior will also be identified and their impacts explained. Some standards are shared across all paradigms because they arise from the common aspects of training, apprenticeship, and employment described above. 
Many others will be unique to that particular school of thought and will, by their nature, define the sort of research undertaken by those economists in which theories endure. The reader should not expect that this volume will leave her feeling as if she is an expert in every school of thought, or that she knows exactly where she stands in terms of her beliefs about the economy. Instead, it is far more likely that its effect will be to open many new questions. If her experience is typical, however, these will be burning questions that will ignite a strong desire to know more about our discipline and the world it purports to explain. And that is chapter two. Next time I visit with you will be chapter three, neoclassical economics. And it's not going to be just economic, um, the, the economic theory. It's also going to be how did it end up being the dominant school of thought? What was the process? Was there a discipline-wide contest? No. In fact, the major factor was, oh, of all these war games I have sitting around here, I don't have one. Oh, well, this will work. This will work. It had a lot to do with this. There's my teaser. May the force be with you. See you next time.